I want to remind you of these words from the Apostle Paul. He says, We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all men. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all men. The writer of Hebrews tells us that our purpose in gathering here Sunday after Sunday is to encourage one another and stir one another up to love and good works. That's why we're here. And that's what we want to do for one another. We want to be a source of encouragement, teach one another, support one another, pray for one another, help one another as we minister to each other in the body and as we hear from the Word of God and as we pray. I'd like to ask you to stand together again and let's pray for ourselves and for those on either side of us. And again, take the hand of the person next to you. And as I lead you through this time of prayer, pray for them and for the things that I, that I mention. The psalmist tells us that the person who will ascend to the mount of God as someone who has a clean heart and clean hands. And so we need to begin by asking the Lord to cleanse us. If there's any area of rebellion in your life, any sin unconfessed, will you confess that sin, judge it, and put it away? And now, will you pray for the person with you? Perhaps you came this morning angry and out of sorts, and uh, perhaps angry at the person that uh, is with you. Pray for them, for forgiveness for them. And if there's anyone else here that uh, whose actions you've resented this past week, would you put that resentment away and pray for that person, that God's purposes would be fulfilled in their life. And now pray for yourself that you'd be filled and flooded with God's presence today, that you'd be dependent upon him, and that he'd use you to, to help others to be a witness to your neighbors and others that you come in contact with, to be a source of encouragement to members of the body as you see them through the day. And now conclude by offering up praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. Thank him for what he's done for you this past week, for his promises, all that he is. Father, we do gather here in in thanksgiving, grateful for what you brought into our life this past week, knowing that everything that comes our way has been prepared for us and screened through your love and is a part of your perfect plan for us. We thank you that you love us and you never turn us out. Thank you for your faithfulness to us. Thank you that you're true to your word. We can count on it and believe you. And thank you for your presence here this morning. Teach us, Father, from what we hear today. Conform us to your character, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This past uh, Wednesday morning after the men's Bible study, I was talking to Wally Hitt, and uh, we had had a especially 
good time. I think uh, Jim Hollingsworth brought up an issue that all of us could relate to, and and we just had a, a great time talking about our failures as well as uh, uh, the Lord's goodness to provide strength as we uh, we appropriate that strength. And as we were leaving, Wally said, you know, marriage just gets sweeter for me every day. And uh, knowing Wally Hitch, you can, you can appreciate that, that comment. And I asked him why, and he began to tell me about Marilyn and their relationship. And I said, Wally, you just got to share that with uh, with the rest of the folks. And so I've asked Wally to come and, and tell us a little bit about what the Lord is doing for him in his uh, marriage and in Marilyn's life as well. Well, all i got to say is uh, that uh, a year ago today, or a year ago at this time, I was separated from my wife and from my family and from the Lord. And uh, that isn't true anymore. And I want to say that the Bible study that Dave mentioned is a uh, is a great place to spend Wednesday morning. For those of you that don't attend it, you're uh, you're missing the boat. And the times that I've missed it, I've been the one that have been shortchanged. We have a good fellowship over there, and uh, men in that Bible class are are the type of men that are concerned for one another, and uh, those men. Uh, knowing that I was out of tune with God's will, leaned on me, and the whole group prayed for me. And I'm sure there are those of you here in this congregation that prayed for Marilyn and I. And uh, it's just fantastic what God can do in your life when you just yield to him. One of the fellows, persistent as he was, invited me to lunch one day, and I thought, boy, he's going to lean on me awful hard. You know, I better uh, take a friend of mine so he won't be saying too much, you know. And uh, I did. I took a friend with me. And uh, God has a funny way of separating it and separating the fellow that I took with me. And and uh, he sent him off the restroom. And while he did, uh, this gentleman leaned on me pretty heavy. And I said, oh, you know, one of these days I'm going to get it together and I'll get back uh, where I belong, probably. I said, uh, I, you know, and I was really troubled. I was really out of tune with the Lord. And uh, his comment to me was, uh, in a pretty stern voice, was, uh, well, what's the matter with right now? What's the matter with right now? And uh, I, I kind of hesitated and said, well, you know, I guess really and truly, if you're going to do it, you better do it. Get back in tune with God. And uh, that man's is uh, if you ever see us, you know, uh, not just shaking hands but uh, hugging one another, why? Uh, it's because of the closeness that that we have. That man, I'm not ashamed to say, is Red Thomas, Harold Thomas. Another one of them that leaned on me pretty heavy out of the group was uh, John Barnes. That guy one day called me on the telephone and said, uh, well, he says, I'm coming by. Let's go over and have a cup of coffee at Plush Pippins. He said, I'll be by, and when I honk the horn, come on out. I work for Zellerback Paper Company. And so he whizzed by and honked his horn, and I came out. And we went over and had a cup of coffee and really shared, you know. And wouldn't you know that he'd come by on uh, on my anniversary? <laughs> Unusual. And we shared. And, and uh, so when you see John and I hugging one another, why, you know why. That guy, uh, you know, he just, he just said, you're just, I just... You know, we all should learn from the book of James. 
don't just be listeners of the Word, be doers of the Word. And uh, these two gentlemen, for instance, were really doers of the Word. But what I really need to tell you is that in our Bible study, we share every once in a while, and there are, there are, a, lot of, there are a lot of problem marriages. There are marriages that just hang in the balance, hang by a shoe thread or a string or whatever you may want to say. And if there's that many in our Bible study that hang by a shoestring or just a thread, there's bound to be a lot of them right here in this audience that are hanging by a thread or that are not in God's will, both he and she. And I'll tell you something. For those of you that don't have that definition of God's love, uh, I really, uh, I really feel sorry for you, and if I knew you personally, I'd pray for you. And I know a lot of people do pray for you, your friends and that. But Marilyn's steadfastness impressed me in the months that I was gone. Every time I would see her, she never, she never came down hard on me. Physically and of her own flesh, she probably felt like it many times, but she didn't. And the reason she didn't is because she was attuned and obedient to God's word. And it was, it was a magnificent thing. She, she just kept hanging in there and hanging in there, you know. And when I'd come by and I'd see her, you know, I, I, I couldn't handle it. I'd have to get out because there was a, there was a guilt deep down in my heart. And it was, uh, it was, it was terrible. I had a number of months that, uh, were really not pleasant. And you know, those months were ten times worse for her. You know, you marry a girl in her late teens, 19 years old, and you, you do all the things for her for 26 years, and, uh, and then you just pull out, and you've, you've spoiled her in some respects in that you haven't taught her how to do all those things, and then the things that you always did have to fall upon her. And I'm sure that our family learned from that. I know I did, and I know she did. And her favorite her favorite verse is, and I'm going to read it to you. That's why I brought the book with me. It's God's definition of love. And for those of you that might want to jot this down in the corner of your Bible where you can easily refer, refer to it, so that when hard times do come and differences between married couples and neighbors, and when you're out of tune with God and you're out of love with your neighbor or your wife or anybody else, you should just turn to this and read it. And it's 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7. It says, Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always preserves. And in that Bible study, there are problems that come up, and some of the men mention the fact that, well, you know, I, I, I work in the world and I live in the world, as we all do, 
and you are among people who are very worldly. And uh, I'll tell you something. If in your activities during the day, if you are confronted with worldly women or vice versa, worldly men, and you just ask God for just ask God to help you in that respect. Ask Him to 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 keep you right. And I'll tell you something. Go home to your spouse, go home to your wife, or go home to your husband, and be able to share the 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 challenge or not the challenges, the 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 problems that you had. Share them with your wife. And if you share them with your wife, I'm telling you, I know it becomes sweet, tender, and comforting. And that breeds sweet and tender comfortingness to one another. Just like that says, well, I tell you, that is strong. You know, love is really, really something. And I, I, just, I just can't explain. You, I will say this, that if you cannot, some of the men say, well, boy, I don't know whether, you know, I, I just don't know whether I could say this to my wife. I don't know how she'd take it. Well, if you can't take it, what he says to you, then you should get in tune with God. Abide by his loving rules. And if you as a husband can't come home and tell your wife what went on today, well, you better get right with God. Really. And it, it's just amazing. There's those of you that go hunting. There's those of you that go fishing. And you put that ahead of everything else. And, and you'll have a little spat or you'll, you'll, I know it used to be that I could never apologize. And I'd say, well, I'm going to do this no matter what. Well, you know, I was out of tune with obedience to God. I really was. I would go ahead and do it. And then I would may feel a little guilt about it. But I would never apologize. And that was always hard for me to do. Man, now, let me tell you. I can be out of tune. And, and, and it isn't a, an, an easy, sweet road. I mean, I haven't got it made, uh, got the world by the tail on a downhill pole. I still have the same problems that everybody does. But I'll tell you, I recognize those problems. And you should recognize them and humble yourself when you have a fit of anger or something bothers you and you blow up in front of your wife or in front of your friends. Be prepared, especially in front of your wife, be prepared to apologize. And no matter if you're clear at the other end of the house and you think, well, I shouldn't have done that, you know. Man, holler out and say, I'm sorry, honey, and walk back and tell her you're sorry. And it's the, it's the other way around, too. Apologize. And, and I'll tell you, marriage becomes a, a very, very sweet thing. And for the fishermen and the hunters that want to run off, you know, they become, uh, I made a couple of notes here. You know, that it, it becomes a ritual with them. And, uh, and they go away, and, and you know something? If you're really in tune with God and in tune with your wife or vice versa, you can go hunting. I have not denied anything that I ever did, but I always go with her blessings, with no anger and a clear conscience. And it's really, it's really sweet. So sharing with your wife or sharing with your husband is all important. It really is. And, and and the mate has got to be able to understand your problems. And I'll tell you something. I don't know why a man in his daily walk 
that's attuned with God would be tempted or 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 play around with anybody worldly when he has a sweet, tender, loving woman at home, or vice versa. I know I couldn't. And I will say that, like the book of James says, that you you just can't be hearers of the word. You've got to be doers. And believe me, uh, you know, I, Marilyn and I prayed about what I would say today. And I said, well, I don't know what I'm going to say. But I know, you know, you can't write out a prayer because that's folly. You've got to just let God guide you and let him put the words in your mouth. Same thing with making a personal testimony. But I'll tell you, for those of you who who don't know and don't adhere to God's word on love, the one that I read, you're really missing the boat. And I strongly recommend that you 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 look at your spouse and you 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 say down deep in your heart that that you really and truly will work to make life what God intended it to be on earth. Don't you know you can live a regular hell on earth being out of tune with God. And I know because I lived that. But thank goodness I am back, really back. And I love it and I really am proud to be able to come forward and share it with you. And I just hope that the rest that are having problems, and don't tell me there isn't any out here that are not having problems, because I know it exists. I just want to say that, remember 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 7, and just abide by those rules. Thank you very much. There have been a number of tough acts to follow this morning, but uh, we'll do the best that we can. Turn to Matthew 8. Last week we completed our studies in the Sermon on the Mount. I'd like to say just a couple of things in retrospect, looking back to those studies. There are two thoughts that I always have when I read through the Sermon on the Mount. The first is the Lord's uncanny insight into human nature. Our Lord understands us in a way that we could never understand ourselves. He knows the nature of things. and. Uh, Probably more importantly, he understands our nature. The truth that uh, we've learned from the Sermon on the Mount is the sort of thing that enables us to face life just the way we have to live it and cope with our problems, come to grips with the situations that face us from day to day. And uh, we see as we start applying these truths that the Lord truly does understand us and he understands life. A couple of weeks ago, I read a statement by a, an American psychiatrist, J.T. Fisher, in a book called A Few Buttons Missing, in which he said, if you were to take the sum total of all authoritative articles ever written by the most qualified of psychologists and psychiatrists on the subject of mental hygiene, if you were to combine them and refine them and cleave out the excess verbiage, if you were to take the whole of the meat and none of the parsley, and if you were to have these unadulterated bits of pure scientific knowledge concisely expressed by the most capable of living poets, you would have an awkward and incomplete summary of the Sermon on the Mount, and it would suffer immeasurably through comparison. 
For nearly 2,000 years, the Christian world has been holding in its hand the complete answer to its restlessness and fruitless yearning. Here rests the blueprint for a successful human life with optimum mental health and contentment. The Lord knows us, and he understands life, and he tells us how to live it as uh, we want to live it. That's the first observation that I make in looking back over the Sermon on the Mount. The second is that the whole thing is utterly impossible. What it demands is godlike behavior, and who of us can be godlike? Only God can be godlike. And that, of course, is exactly Jesus' point. None of us can keep the principles of the Sermon on the Mount. We simply don't have the resources to be a man or a woman or a child like that. We just can't do it. And so Jesus tells us in the sermon that uh, it's his power that makes it all possible. We simply have to ask and receive. His authority, his power is available to be what, what he's commanded us to be. He never asks us to do anything that's ultimately impossible. We can fulfill these obligations as we walk in the Spirit, as we abide in him, as we rest in his life and draw on, on his mighty power. Now, he's going to continue the theme of power throughout the next four chapters, and uh, what Matthew wants us to see in chapters 8 and 9 and 10 and 11 is that Jesus had power to back up his words. He was a man of authority, and his authority is available to us. In chapters 8 and 9, we see his authority demonstrated in his miracles, and in chapters 10 and 11, illustrated in his sending forth missionaries and giving them the authority that he had. The key word throughout, throughout is power or authority. You see it occurring first in 729. He was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. And then you have the illustration of the centurion who knew what it was to be under authority and understood that Jesus had that sort of power. And then in chapter 9, verse 8, when the multitude saw this, they were filled with awe and glorified God who had given such authority to men. And then finally in chapter 10, verse 1, he summons the twelve disciples and gives them authority over unclean spirits. And so what Matthew will do is describe for us his authority as we see it in his works and his miracles and as he transfers that that authority to others. Now let's go back to chapter 8, and we'll look at the first 17 verses of that chapter. And when he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and bowed down to him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And he stretched out, and stretching out his hand, he touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one, but go show yourself to the priest and present the offering that Moses prescribed for a testimony to them. I think perhaps you uh, saw, as you may never have seen before, what an awful thing leprosy was. Uh, Steve's portrayal was uh, very accurate. We don't uh, really have much appreciation for this disease because most of us here in the Western world have never seen leprosy. Probably the closest... Uh, counterpart would be cancer and the awfulness of that, of that illness. But a leper was someone who was ostracized and, and rejected and carried, as Steve so well 
portrayed that terrible sense of worthlessness because they were outside of, of society and prohibited from approaching anyone. Apparently this man, down on his hands and knees, began to crawl in Jesus' direction. He was prohibited by law from getting any closer than six feet to Jesus. And uh, the Lord, apparently getting down on his knees in the dirt because the man was prostrated uh, in front of him, put his hand on him, touched him, and broke every convention in that society. No one touched a leper. No one approached a leper. The very fact that uh, this man was willing to approach Jesus tells us something of Jesus' character because this man would never have approached any other rabbi, but he saw Jesus' compassion and his tenderness, and he knew that he wouldn't be uh, put off by his approach. He wouldn't reject him. And so down on his knees in the dirt, he bowed before Jesus, and Jesus knelt beside him and touched him. I have a good friend who has really been tenderized by life. He started out, at least when I first knew him, he was a very cocky, self-assured person without much compassion for people. And uh, as he's gone through life, he's, uh, he's passed through a series of, of uh, crises. He's been battered and, and afflicted. His wife left him, took the children, and then sometime later his his oldest boy was involved in an automobile accident and was paralyzed from the neck down and will be paralyzed for life. And Roy and I used to meet periodically on the campus where we were studying just to pray for one another and encourage each other. One day as we were walking through the streets of Berkeley, California, we were following a, a lady with a little boy. The little boy was about four or five years old, a little ragamuffin. Looked like he had a, hadn't had a haircut and. In a couple of months, stringy blonde hair, it's kind of dirty, his clothes were dirty, uh, had a runny nose, really not a very attractive little boy. And, and his mother was holding him by one hand, and he was hitting the ground about every fourth step because she was taking great big steps, and she was yelling at him and swearing at him, angry. She'd jerk on his arm, pull him along, and finally they came to an intersection, and we were right behind them, and and the little boy was so tired, he just sat down on the curb, and his mother let loose a barrage of profanity and, and walked off and left him. And the little boy just sat there on the curb and sobbed. And uh, people passed him by. No one even looked. And Roy sat down on the curb right next to him in all the dirt and just gathered the little boy up onto his lap and held him and talked to him. And a few minutes later, the, his mother had walked on down the street, and she realized that he wasn't with her, and so she turned around, and, and she saw what was happening, and she started down the street, swearing at the top of her lungs, swearing at the little boy and at Roy, and finally she stood right in front of him, and Roy picked the little boy up and handed him to his mother. And she started to walk away, and Roy said, Uh, lady, if you don't want him, I'll take him. And I've never forgotten that, that little confrontation because I, I saw in Roy a, a, a godlike spirit that he's learned through suffering because I realized that that's precisely the way the Lord looks at us. If no one wants us, the Lord will take us. We may feel rejected, and perhaps you've been rejected this past week. You've gone through some experience that just has been devastating to your sense of self-worth and 
and you don't feel that you're anyone or that anyone cares about you or that you're loved or appreciated, and perhaps you think that no one wants you, much like this leper, but the Lord wants you, and he loves you, and he's not put off by your condition, the defilement that you may have experienced. Perhaps you've gone through some sexual experience that has left you wasted and defiled. It doesn't matter to the Lord Jesus. If it, if it didn't offend him or bother him to touch a leper, then he's not offended by your state of being. He loves you. And he wants to heal you and provide the cleansing and the wholeness and the sense of worth that you're looking for. And then Jesus, having cleansed this leper, sent him, as Steve told us, off to the, to the priest to receive the, uh, the, the rites of the temple to carry out the sacrifices that Moses had prescribed. I, I, I've often wished I could be a little, could have been there to see that priest uh, when he first confronted this leper because in all the history of Israel, not one leper had ever been cleansed. Not one. Moses had prescribed uh, in the book of Leviticus a sacrifice to be offered when a leper was cleansed, but that sacrifice had never been enacted in all the history of Israel. There is one instance in the Old Testament where a man was cleansed of leprosy, Naaman, during the time of Elisha the prophet. But Naaman wasn't a, an Israelite. He was an Assyrian. And so this uh, sacrifice had never been practiced, and I'm sure the priests must have scurried around in the archives looking for the law, and then they got the thing out, and they got the bird in one hand, and they said, let's see, now what do we do here? Okay, we kill this bird, and then we, uh, we dip this bird in the blood, and and the confusion that must have reigned when that man came for the sacrifice because they didn't know what to do, because it had never happened before. And that's the sort of person that the Lord Jesus is. He does things that no one else can do. Nothing your psychiatrist can do. Nothing any medication can do for you. And if you've tried everything, you've simply come to the end of yourself, and there's no, no, no other place to turn, then no Jesus can do for you what no one else can do. He's the healer of hurting hearts. And then we're told in verses 5 through 13 of the uh, second witness to his authority. And when he entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him entreating him and saying, <clears throat> Sir, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering great pain. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy. That's the term. I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. In other words, this man understand, understood the principle of authority. He was, a, 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 he was in the, the Roman military. So he understood that he had to submit to authority, and others had to submit to his authority. I say to this one, come, and he comes, and to this one, go, and he goes. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. And I say to you that many shall come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way. Let it be done to you as you have believed. 
and the servant was healed that very hour. I used to have a, a master sergeant when I was in the army who'd been run out of the Po Valley by the Chinese. He was in artillery. He was in the artillery in, in Korea. And he was a man about, he's probably about 5'4", and he's about this wide, and his shoulders started right below his neck. And uh, what I always remember about him is that he always wore his collar too tight, so his face was always red. He had one, uh, one volume, and it was full on. He, he had the loudest voice of any man I ever heard, one of the most profane people I ever have been around. He knew swear words that I had never even heard before. And uh, he, was, he was tough, really tough. And when I think of the centurion, I think of a man like that, because that's the way these centurions were. They, these were the regular army of, of the Roman Empire. These were not the 90-day wonders. These were the men who'd come up through the ranks, had literally fought their way up through the ranks. They were tough old soldiers who'd seen it all. It's interesting in, in the New Testament how, how, how highly honored they are. There was the centurion at the foot of the cross. And there were those centurions that contacted uh, Paul in various ways. Uh, there was one that, that uh, alerted him to a plot against his life. Another that uh, stopped a flogging when he discovered he was a Roman soldier. Another who accompanied on him on the ship. And uh, these, were, these were men that, that had a great deal of integrity. Tough old soldiers, but but men that were highly respected, both by the New Testament writers and by the people of their day, but not at all religious people. This man was not a proselyte to Judaism because he says, I'm not worthy for you to come into my house, and therefore he must not have been a, a Gentile who was practicing Judaism because a, a proselyte would never have made a statement like that. He would have considered himself a Jew and thus worthy for Jesus to enter his house. As you know, Jews did not go into Gentiles' houses in those days. And so this was a, a military man, a secular man, not at all religious. It, it is true that this man had built a, a, a synagogue for the Jews in Capernaum. For whatever reason, we just don't know, but not religious. According to the Gospel of Luke, this man didn't even come to Jesus. He sent word through the Jewish elders. Perhaps he thought that they would have uh, greater authority with Jesus. And so he sent word through these elders, and they approached Jesus. Jesus said, I'll come. And he started on the road to his house, but on the way, the man sent his servants and said, Don't, don't bother to come. Just say the word, and my servant will be healed. And so Jesus spoke the word, and his servant was healed. No uh, histrionics, no mumble-jumble, no mumbo-jumbo. He just spoke the word, and the servant was healed. And Jesus said, I've never seen faith like this, even in Israel. Even among those folks who go to the synagogue every Sabbath day, who keep the law, who are very religious and upright, I've never seen anything like this. This man understands. He's willing to submit himself to my authority. And when I think of the centurion, I think of that tough old sergeant, cigar-chomping, profane sergeant. It's that kind of person that Jesus loved and that kind of person that he reached out to because he saw in this man a heart for God. He was reaching out toward the Lord, and the Lord responded. So again, you see, there's no one too far gone, no one too far out 
for the Lord. He loved them all. And then in verse 14, when Jesus had come to Peter's home, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick in bed with a fever. And he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she arose and began to wait on him. And when evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were ill, in order that what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, He himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. I suppose this uh, story is there to forever put an end to all of the bad mother-in-law jokes. Because one point you can make out of this passage is that mothers-in-law matter. Jesus, uh, we know from the other Gospels, was very tired. It was the end of a long, exhausting day. He arose very early in the morning before dawn and went out to pray. And then he had preached in the synagogue. And he had healed many and had many conversations. And he was worn out and apparently went back to Capernaum to Peter and Andrew's house in order to rest. And he walked in the door. And Peter said, I'm sorry, Mom is sick. We'll have to go into the kitchen and fix peanut butter sandwiches or something. And, and Jesus said, well, let's go see what, what's wrong. And he found her burning with fever. This uh, particular term that's used here by, by Matthew can be traced back through Aramaic to the, to the Talmud, the ancient uh, Jewish commentary on the law. And we're told there that the procedure in a case like this for a burning fever was to take a kitchen knife and tie it by a strand of hair to a thorn bush, and then they had certain magic words and incantations that they said over the thorn bush, and then they cut the thorn bush down and burned it, and supposedly that would affect healing. And Jesus walks into a room, and he takes her by the hand, and he speaks a word, and he lifts her up, and she goes back into the house and begins to serve them. She's the first deaconess. Actually, our term deaconess comes from the term it's used here, a servant. And so she, she begins to cook dinner for Jesus and the other, the other uh, apostles who are accompanying him. And here out of the limelight, in a cottage, away from the crowd, Jesus cares for this seemingly insignificant woman. A centurion is one thing. He's on the high end of the uh, social scale. The leper is on the other end because while he uh, he's, uh, was a dis- discard, he still was out in public where people saw him and knew him, but, but who knew of Peter's mother-in-law? Just a quiet, humble woman who was there serving in the home, and Jesus shows his compassion for this woman as well. You see, Jesus is the healer of hurting hearts. He heals hurts wherever they exist and in whom, whomever they exist. It doesn't matter to him what our station in life is or how badly we've messed our lives up how far short we've fallen from measuring up to our own standards, much less God's standards. Those things don't matter. He understands our heart. He knows us, and he has the authority to heal. Now, these healings, the ones that we've seen this morning, are all physical. They were all signs of Jesus' authority as Messiah. The Old Testament had predicted that when Messiah came, he would give sight to the blind and the ears of the deaf would be unstopped and their tongues would be loosed and and healing uh, would take place. That would be the sign of the new era. The kingdom had come when Messiah began to heal. And that's why Jesus healed. It was a sign of his authority as as, as, as the Messiah. 
And had they received him as Messiah, then the, then the kingdom would have come. But they discarded him. They rejected him. And so the world went back to its tragic ways. And sin and sickness set back in. And it's not God's will today that everyone be healed. There is healing in the atonement in the sense that when Jesus comes back again, then our bodies will be redeemed. But for right now, God's not necessarily healing our bodies. He may, but he doesn't in every case. It may be God's will that we continue on through life with some physical affliction. But what we are promised is that God will heal the emotional hurts, the spiritual hurts. He'll heal us of our jealousy and our bitterness and our greed and our critical spirits and our feelings of rejection and worthlessness. He's the healer of broken hearts. That's the kind of Lord we have. And therefore, Scripture tells us we need to cast our anxiety upon him because he cares about us. As the chorus goes, all your anxiety, all your care, take them to Jesus and leave them there. Never a burden he cannot bear, never a friend like Jesus. Let's pray, shall we? Deliver us, Father, from our, our stubbornness, our tendency to want to carry our own burdens and bear our own griefs when you're the one who came to bear them away. Teach us to cast our anxiety upon you, knowing that you care about us. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.